Hello and welcome back to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and our very special guest joining me again on the show is Dr. Alistair Roberts of the Theopolis Institute in the States and he's here to discuss, I wonder what he's here to discuss? Oh, the book of Revelation. Yes, absolutely. Chapter 18, we're up to, we've nearly, we're nearly there, Alistair. We really are. We're <laughs> a few chapters away from the end. It all gets very exciting at this point. It it does. It's the it's the end of the intergalactic cricket match, and as we say now, um, try not to, to think about cricket too much at the moment. No, <laughs> it's no, a painful or, subject. And and, and also, uh, did I mention rugby? Let's not mention the Rugby World Cup at all. Um, this will play after after the event. So anyway, now uh, what did we see last time in chapter seventeen? Chapter seventeen was the vision of the whore of Babylon and the beast that she rode upon. And that really sets up the scene for chapter 18, which is the outcome of the judgment upon the beast and the, upon the woman, the whore of Babylon. So we thought about the identity of um, the, the woman, the way that she's described um, relative to Babylon, the way that she's drinking the blood of the saints. And it really sets up what we're going to see in this chapter, which is her judgment. Yes, who or what is Babylon? It seems to me that Babylon is to be taken as Jerusalem. Um, Jerusalem riding upon the beast of Rome. Rome is the power that undergirds the power of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is this whole system, as we'll see very much within this chapter, of religious authority that's focused upon the temple with the leaders of the Jews and then going out into the wider empire with the various um, cities of the empire having their own synagogues and Jewish communities within the diaspora. This is a large religious system. And at the heart of it is this unfaithful city and its leaders. This unfaithful city had already been condemned in Christ's teaching. Um, think about Matthew 23, the woes that Jesus declared, and this is going to be its downfall. Yes. To what extent is chapter 18 a chapter about a second exodus? It is at the heart of it, there is this call to come out of her, my people. This judgment upon a city is reminiscent of judgments upon other cities. We thought about the similarities between the judgments on Jericho and the judgments upon Jerusalem. The seven trumpets, this is a harlot. Um, we can think back to Jericho and Rahab. But Rahab is a harlot called out of the city. We might think about Sodom and its abominations and the way that the people of Lot's household are called out of that city and taken by the hand. Again, two witnesses in both cases. And then the story of the Exodus with Moses and Aaron coming to the land of Egypt and then the people being brought out by the hand. There's going to be a new um, establishment of a, a temple, a new establishment of a covenant, as it were, that follows this. So there are overarching Exodus themes that we should notice. So we're really referring to the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in AD 70, among other things, aren't we? Mm. Who or what are the three speakers who are introduced to us here? The three speakers are these different classes of persons that have interests within the city. So there's the kings of the earth, there's the merchants of the earth, and then there's all the shipmasters and seafaring men, then the sailors. Now, the way that we understand those depends 
fundamentally upon the opposition that we've seen at various points between the land and the sea and the connection between the land and the people of the land and the people of Israel and the people of the sea and the Gentiles or those who live within the realm of the Gentiles. The sea is connected with the realm of the Gentiles in places like Daniel 7, where you have the beasts arising out of the sea. Here we have the kings of the earth, which would be the rulers of the land. We might think about Herod, the Sanhedrin, other um, important officials and authorities. Then when we think about the merchants of the land, we might think about those who are bearing the wares of the land out into the wider world. This might be the mis missionaries. We can think of the missionary organization that kind of shadowed the missionary movement of Paul and his fellow missionaries. Following hard upon their steps, there was a counter-missionary movement. And then we can think about the way that Jesus described the um, scribes and Pharisees going over land and sea to find one proselyte and then ending up making him more of a child of hell than they themselves. This is the sort of system within which um, this is operating. And then the ship masters, and the sailors, the seafarers, those would be um, Jewish communities within the diaspora, most likely. Mm. So it would be synagogues, synagogue leaders, and the members of those congregations. Can we just trace back some of the uh, Old Testament allusions uh, for a minute or two? How does this chapter echo the fall of Babel back in Genesis? Well, the fall of Babel was one brought about on account of the hubris of the builders of the city. They sought to bring together all of humanity and they sought to bring together heaven and earth. It was a sort of grand imperial project operating in two different axes, vertical and horizontal. This judgment upon Babel is one that frustrates its endeavors. This is something similar. The city is a connection conduit between heaven and earth. It's a engaging in a trade in spiritual things. You might think about the way that Jesus talked about the city of Jerusalem and the way that he talked also about the temple in particular. It was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. It was supposed to be a sort of answer to Babel, a place where all the nations were brought together in the common speech of prayer, a conduit between heaven and earth for communication between God and man. And it was also to be a place of gathering all the nations coming up to this place to worship. And what you have instead is a, a house of brigands, which is what it became. And Jesus con condemned it as that house of thieves or brigands. So what that represents the temple as is a place where people would go for refuge to avoid the consequences of their actions. It's a den of thieves. It's a place of sanctuary for evil people rather than actually a place where there is this conduit between heaven and earth and a gathering place of all humanity. This city has become that. And if we look through the Old Testament more generally, we can see the way that the story of Babel begun in Genesis chapter 11 plays out in the later story of Babylon. We've reflected upon this at various points in our treatment of Daniel. And this is another place where we see connections between Babel, Babylon, and these larger overarching themes. Here, I think it helps to consider the way that Babylon is the archetypal imperial 
city, the archetypal city that it's the city that the context that Abraham was Abraham was called from. It's the context that they went to in the exile. It is the fundamental city out of which they were called and the fundamental city to which they returned as a result of the exile from the land. And so the judgment upon Babylon that's spoken of at various points in the prophets has an archetypal flavor, much as the exodus and the judgment upon Egypt has a sort of archetypal flavor, where what happens to this particular city represents the Lord's judgment more generally. And so later events of judgment can be um, described in terms redolent of that previous destruction. Mm, well, let's come on and uh, deal with some of the details. There's a lot in this chapter, isn't there? The birds and beasts. We have more animals, lots and lots of animals in Revelation. Verse 2. What Now, what's the significance of the birds and the beasts there? And how do the birds and beasts refer back to birds and beasts generally in the Old Testament? Again, it's helpful to reflect upon the ways in which this sort of language is used in Scripture and the overarching frameworks of symbolism that we're working within. We thought about land and sea. Birds and beasts can also be connected to the days five and first half of day six of creation. And they can also represent human beings. Think about the sacrificial system. Within the sacrificial system, there are five sacrificial animals. There's the um, there's cattle, there's goats, there's sheep, there are turtle doves and pigeons. So birds and beasts representing human beings. And birds and beasts can also represent, at certain points, unclean spirits. And here we might think about the unclean spirits that are taking over, but also the unclean persons that are taking over. Now, this is going to be a handing over of Jerusalem to be trampled on by the Gentiles. And this is a, a sort of condemnation that recalls some of the ways that the destruction of Babylon is described within the book of um, Isaiah and elsewhere. Yes, when the people will leave, the animals take over. It's kind of like a decreation, isn't it, in a sense? Um, in what ways does God judge Babylon there in verses 1 to 8? Yes, it, it receives the consequences of its actions. Um, it has engaged in the persecution and the uh, relishing the blood of the saints, and now it's going to suffer. Um, it's going to be destroyed. We might think back again to Matthew chapter 23 and Jesus' indictment upon the city in that context. This is something that is coming upon Jerusalem also because it has it has defiled all these other groups. It has been at the heart of a large network of spiritual commerce. And it has, through that spiritual commerce, been spreading its own corruption rather than actual spreading the true gospel. Now, of course, in the faithful teaching of the church, that purpose of Jerusalem is fulfilled as all over the world there is this communication of God's life-giving truth. That is the alternative to the sort of thing that Babylon or um, Jerusalem is described as here. What's the importance of the wine and the cup? We think back to Jeremiah, um, in the book of Jeremiah, it talks of the cup of the Lord's judgment that the nations is handed around the nations. And as they drink of it, they will reel from it. And finally, it will be handed to Babylon. Babylon, the means of the Lord's judgment upon most of those nations, will itself have to drink the cup and drain it. And it will be caused to topple. That cup 
might also recall the cup that Jesus talks about in his judgment. He has to drink a cup. Or we might think also of the cup that um, comes in the previous chapter, which is the cup that Babylon is drinking of, the cup filled with the blood of the saints, a cup that brings upon Babylon the guilt connected with that. Also, we've noted the way that the cup could be connected with the test of jealousy in Numbers chapter 5, the bitter cup that brings about the Lord's judgment upon the unfaithful party. Well, I think we've dealt with the uh, the people, three people groups, haven't we? The kings of the land, the merchants, and the, the sailors. What's the significance of the list of 28 items there in verse, is it verse 12? Yes. We can connect those items perhaps to the various items of the worship of the um, temple. It's a vision of luxury and wealth, of um, a sort of commerce in all of the things of the world. It's um, all the treasures and riches that have been spread. Now, if we think about the various parties involved, the parties being involved are described in a way that makes us think of this great argosy of um, treasures that's spreading upon the ocean. We can think of the kings, the, the merchants who are bringing in in their fleets these great treasures from distant exotic lands. And here we have a list of the sorts of things that the sheer multi multitude of items suggests just how big the influence of this city is, how great its stature, and also the um, royal status that it enjoys. It is a queen over all of the nations. It is the, spiritually speaking, it is the royal city. It's the city around which everything else is ordered. And so it's gathering in all these treasures from around about. Later on, we'll see another city that gathers things in from all around. This is the city that is the false city that is gathering in all the treasures of the world and of the waters. Now, how are these lists connected with the materials used to um, construct the tabernacle and temple? Many of the items are items used in the construction of the temple. Some of the things are used as items of worship. So we might think about the frankincense and myrrh. We might also think of the wine and the oil and the flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses. All of these are items that would be used in the wider life of the, the temple, not so much the horses. The horses presumably would be used in preparing certain things and bringing sacrifices. But this is a large network that has a, it's ultimately about religious, it's about religious worship. But many of the items here are not just items that you'd associate with priestly service. They're items that you'd also associate with kingly rule. Horses and chariots, silk, and purple cloth, and um, these sorts of things, articles of ivory. These are things that suggest not just the um, work of the temple, but also the honor in, and the power and the luxury enjoyed by kings. And we can see the connection between the temple and the king in not just the fact that the king builds the temple, but the temple is part of the king's complex in um, the book of First Kings. As Solomon builds the temple, it's connected to his own, his own um, palace. It's his palace as the son of the king, as the son of the Lord, is within the wider complex of the temple. And so Israel's status is one that has enjoyed a sort of 
there's a sort of kingly, spiritually speaking, status enjoyed that's connected with the worship of the temple. Yeah. How I wonder does the list, I'm still on this list, I'm, it's fascinating. How does this list refer back to the passages about Tyre in the book of Ezekiel? Because Ezekiel is never far from the book of Revelation, is it? Yes. And the description of the destruction of Tyre in um, Ezekiel 27 is, again, remember Tyre, whereas Babylon is a city that rules over the whole of the land, the whole of the region from the north. Um, Tyre is a seafaring city. It's the city that's connected with trade and with power at sea. And so the description of this as Babylon, I mean, this is not what Babylon was like as a city, but it's a description of Babylon with many of the characteristics that we would associate with Tyre. We can think about the ways that its um, treasures are described. It's Tyre, who dwells at the entrances to the sea, merchant of the peoples to many coastlands. And then the way that she's described the various treasures that are part of her, um, planks of fir trees from Senir, um, cedar from Lebanon, oaks of Bashan, um, coast, uh, decks of pines from the coasts of Cyprus, Cyprus inlaid with ivory, um, linen from Egypt, etc., etc. And the description of what it does is it's a trade city. And as you go through chapter um, 27 verses 12 and following, you can see this. Tarshish did business with you because of your great wealth of every kind, silver, iron, tin, and lead, they exchanged for your wares. And as you go down, you have all the lists of the different trade partners, the various things that were traded, and the ways in which Tyre grew wealthy from this commerce. And it describes at the end, so you were filled and heavily laden in the heart of the seas. It's a city that is facing out to sea because it's a city of commerce and power at sea. And this is something that's very similar, though it's a spiritual commerce that's taking place. Yes, I was going to say, what is Revelation 18 actually condemning? It's condemning a sort of false spiritual trade that ultimately brings people into spiritual bondage. And that is seen in the final elements that um, we see um, mentioned slaves, that is human souls. This is a traffic in lives. And the way that Jesus describes the city of Jerusalem and the ways that those going out from Jerusalem on these missions, these scribes and Pharisees, were making people children of hell. They are bringing people into spiritual bondage. Although they're going out with a spiritual mission, they are ending, ending up bringing people into spiritual bondage because they are unfaithful themselves. So this ultimately is uh, a spiritual reality. It's not just a reality of a, a nation that's getting very powerful in trade and commerce. This is ultimately something that's bringing people into bondage. It's in, co it's in collusion with the beast, and it's also something that is behind it all, the dragon himself. Okay, how do the kings, merchants, and sailors pronounce woes over the city? And and do, is there any sense of repentance here among these different groups? There isn't that much of a strong sense of repentance. Um, we might think perhaps of the ways that the woes or the mourning in Zechariah chapter 10, uh, 12 
um, verse 10, 14 is described, that has more of a flavor of repentance. This is probably best related to the description in the beginning of the book of the one who has pierced all the tribes of the earth mourning. And this is mourning as a result of loss. And so they begin with a description of the loss that has occurred, and then they pronounce a woe upon it, a, a lament over it, alas, alas. And so there are two stages to each of these pronouncements on mm. the part of the um, three parties. What's the significance of the great millstone there in verse 21? Again, we've thought about the way that this is ultimately about spiritual bondage. And if we go back to Christ's words in in um, Matthew chapter, I think it's Matthew 21. In Matthew 21, where he talks about, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Um, that's referring to the city and the mountain of the temple. And then also the way that Jesus talks about those who abuse or mis um, mislead the the least. I think it's Luke 17, I think, where it says, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mul mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. And then earlier on, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, then that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. So taking those things together, we have casting into the sea. We can think about that as the realm of the Gentiles. We can also think about the way that the fig tree or the mulberry tree is connected. They're connected with the temple. Um, certainly in Jesus' judgment upon the fig tree in the final week, there is the connection between that and the temple. And then this upper millstone, the upper millstone is the means of the judgment upon the one who mistreats or causes one of the little ones to sin. And Jesus there talks about that judgment, which I think is taking place here. Um, the judgment here is upon a city that is causing people to sin, vulnerable people, taking them into spiritual bondage. And so it is going to be cast into the sea. And the way that it's going to be cast into the sea also suggests a sort of another image for the city. It's an upper millstone, the great millstone. It's the um, top stone with another stone beneath. Um, and you turn the upper millstone and the bottom part beneath it would, um, would be that upon which things would be um, broken down. Now, we can think about that rumbling of a city and its commerce like the movement of this great millstone turning and churning all the people within it. And a city can be described as a boiling pot in somewhere like Jeremiah. Here, the city is like a millstone that's turning around and producing grain, but it's producing a false grain. And this is ultimately going to be cast into the sea. Okay, uh, we're nearly there uh, with this chapter. Music. Music has been a great theme throughout Revelation and continue, will continue to be. Why does the end of, of Jerusalem, uh, Babylon, mean the end of music here? We've already seen in the image of the upper millstone the sort of implication of a sound, uh, this great rumbling that's coming. 
and the silencing of that as the upper millstone is cast into the sea. Earlier on in the book, we've seen various points where there have been songs taken up in heaven, or there's been a change or development, an enriching of the worship of the heavenly throne room. Here, there is a silencing of song, a silencing of the voice of the bride and the bridegroom. We can think about the ways that these things pick up language of um, places like Jeremiah and elsewhere. The silencing of the city that was once a hubbub and uh, filled with noise and commerce. Now it's going to be struck dumb. It's going to be struck silent. And that silencing of song is also a silencing of the glory of the city. Song is that which suggests joy. It suggests, uh, again, it's a sort of image of luxury, this beautiful music making. Um, think, think also of the way that music plays a role in certain imperial visions in places like Daniel chapter 3 and the playing of all these multitude of musical instruments, coordinating the song of all these people from all these different tribes, tongues, and nations in their common worship of the golden image. Here we have the silencing of all of that. Yes, I was going to ask you to what extent it's also a reference to the instruments of temple worship. Yes, the worship of the temple was glorified with the addition of song. Peter Lightheart has written this great book, From Silence to Song, that explores what he calls the Davidic liturgical revolution, the way in which during the reign of David, although the tabernacle worship was split apart, you had the tabernacle and the sacrifices associated with it in one part, and you had the shrine later on after um, chapter six of Second Samuel established within the city of Jerusalem. Within that context of the shrine, there was this new worship of song that was established Particularly by David, we can think about David as the sweet singer of Israel, the psalmist, the one who composed so many of the psalms that we still sing today. And that silencing of the glory of song, of worship, is a silencing of the worship of the, of the temple, among other things. Okay, uh, what's the pharmakeia or sorcery referred to in verse 23 then? If we think back to the spiritual bondage that is described... Um, the way that this city is bringing souls or slaves into captivity. It's like a millstone that's about to be cast into the sea because it causes little ones to sin. It's also uh, involved in these perverse practices. It's a whore, it's spiritually adulterous, but it's also a sort of, it's adulterous in the sense of false worship. It's demonic, it's um, engaged in witchcraft and sorcery. And so the way that it's described here highlights that aspect of it as well. It's abusing human beings, bring them into captivity and drinking the blood of the saints. It's engaged in spiritual adultery and it's also engaged in the sort of fornication of witchcraft and sorcery. Last question, Alistair. What's the significance of the blood there in, in verse, uh, verse 24? Perhaps the best place to go to think about this is, again, connecting this back with Jesus' teaching concerning Jerusalem. In Jesus' teaching concerning Jerusalem, he spoke of the way that he had to go to Jerusalem because the prophet should not die outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the place that killed the prophets. And this is the description that he gives. Therefore, I 
Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. That description of the city is filled with the blood of the saints, that um, all these people from the foundation of the world who have died in that city. Again, it's another argument for why this needs to be understood to be Jerusalem. This is the way that Jesus described the city. This is the way that the city is condemned by Jesus and those great woes at the end of um, at the end of his public teaching in Matthew. And in, then in Matthew as well, immediately after this, we have the teaching concerning the um, destruction of the temple and the sign of Christ coming. This is the, these are the events that bring about the sentence that follows the indictment of chapter 23 of Matthew. And so what we have here is much the same thing. Um, the blood that's filled with is the blood of the righteous that Jesus condemned it for. Wonderful, there we are, Revelation 18. Dr. Alistair Roberts of the Theopolis Institute in the States, thank you so much, and thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes as always. Alistair, thank you so much. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com. <laughs>